Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake. Uh, it is me, Rain Wilson, and... It is I, Reza Aslan, grammatically correct. Oh, listen, we've got a question today about music, and we really need... Uh, someone to answer it. Where does music come from? There's such a beautiful, mysterious, mystic quality to where music itself, you know, the the song of the cosmos actually comes from. Who are we going to find to discuss this with us? You may not know this about me, but I, I used to be in a in a band. I used to be in a rock band. You were in a band? I had a life as a musician in my early 20s. Seriously, you were in a band in your early 20s? I was in a band, yeah. I was a lead singer. Band called Pike. It's not a joke. Pike? I, I have a, look, I have a photo right here, right here, of me in my in my band, Pike. It was, it was the 90s. Everybody, anybody with a guitar was in a band in the 90s. Why were you named after a fish? <laughs> it's not a not a fish. It's more about the, the spear and... You know, why were you named after a spear? So, I don't really, I don't want to get too deep into it. It was just, we were called Pike. It had some Jesus connotations. Let's move on. Anyway. Wait, 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 wait. Are you, were you in a Christian rock band? Well, I, I wouldn't call it a Christian rock band. It was a, it was a rock band and we happened to be Christians. Those are different. Those are two different things. Did you things. ever play a gig outside of a church? Yes. Did we also play gigs in church? Yes. Okay. So see, there's a difference. Now is Pike? Right? It's not does, the. Was Jesus poked with a pike? Is that what? What? How does that work? What's? I don't it's get the kind connection. Of a long, it's sort of. It, it, there's a. There's a. It's a long circuitous spiritual connection. But look, it. It's very much like the kinds of songs that we sang. You know, our songs were, were uh, the kinds of songs that you know. Well, look, it could have been about Jesus. It could have been about a girl. Who knows? It could have been either. That would be a great game show. Uh, question, wouldn't it? Kind of like you have to choose, you know, you have to pick like, is this a song about Jesus or a song about love? Like, <laughs> your love lifts me up to the clouds. Like, it could be Jesus, could be a girl. I'm going to say that one is definitely Jesus. Yeah, that was Jesus. I, I want to be on my knees all night. <laughs> that that one could be either. Like, it, it well, could be, that's could getting be a about little, a girl. That's getting pornographic. Could be about Jesus. Yeah, I don't know about that. But <laughs> What you're telling me right now is that you could be the authority to talk to us about where music comes from because you were in the early 90s Christian rock band, Pike. All I'm saying is if we're going to have a conversation about where music comes from, is it like a divinely inspired thing? Does it come from within? Is it about, you know, accessing some frequency out there? Or is it about just simply sitting down and doing the grind? Uh, you know, we have a rock star... In our midst, we don't need to go and find one, but where, where are we going to get a rock star anyway? I mean, honestly, like what rock star is going to come on our, our podcast? Well, uh, Reza, as a matter of fact, uh, my good friend, uh, Jason Isbell, uh, maybe you've heard of him. The Guardian described his songwriting as honest reflections about Southern identity and working class life that are rarely glamorous, but always incisive in their disenchantment. Yes, the Jason Isbell whose song Maybe It's Time was in your favorite movie, A Star Is Born. Wait a minute. Are you talking about four-time Grammy winner, singer, songwriter, and guitarist Jason Isbell? Why would four-time Grammy winner Jason Isbell be on our podcast? That doesn't make any sense at all. Because I called in a favor. But first, before we go to Jason, I need to hear some Pike. Give us a, give us a taste. Uh... <laughs> Too much, it's too much pressure. I need to hear some Pike right now. 
maybe afterwards. Ladies and gentlemen, as was said earlier, four-time Grammy winner, singer, songwriter, great human being, and American. Jason Isbell is here. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake. I'm happy to be here. I, I admire you both, and, and I'm happy to speak with you today. Listen, before we get started, I mean, I don't want to like put Rain on the spot or anything, but you should just know that he, he's a really big fan of yours. He likes weird music. Yeah, I mean, you could tell you could tell just by the way he looks right now. He's trying not to be like all fan gushy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like people... him when he's blushing. Southeastern is an album I've listened to uh, uh, as much or more than any other album that I own. Oh, it's wow. It's up there with as many listens as, let's go with like Blonde on Blonde and uh, wow. OK Computer and oh. uh, a handful Whoa. of other uh, amazing albums. That is a pantheon right there. That's big, yeah. Rolling Stones list of top 10 country albums for 2013. That doesn't do it justice. So it's, a <laughs> lot, it's a lot bigger than that. That's actually an interesting place to start, Jason. Like so often people refer to you as a country music mm-hmm. star or a country musician. I, I just wonder like how you feel about that. I mean, does that, do you feel like that kind of boxes you in in a genre that, sure, of course, you know, it, it, it's an influence and uh, and some of your songs definitely have like a country feel to them. But how do you feel when someone calls you a country musician? Well, when they call me a country star, you know, I have to figure out which is more wrong, the, the country part or the star <laughs> part. Um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm a country person, I guess, by default. Uh, but I don't necessarily think I make country music. I make music that is influenced by country music, but probably... Uh, equally influenced by uh, rock and roll music and blues music and, and R&B music, which a lot of people mistakenly call soul music. And, you know, I, I don't think it's a, a, a pretty, I don't think it's a genre kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I try to stay away from things that I don't feel uh, qualified to create. Um, you know, so so I'm making some form of my, type of music, which is which is a combination of all the things that I like. But I, I don't consider myself really a country music singer. You grew up in the South, obviously, right? Was it Alabama? Mm-hmm. Alabama. Alabama. All the way. All the yeah. way in. That's what the South calls the South. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's um, a, a Southerner's South. How much of that, that environment, being in the South, how much of that um, went into the kind of em- emotional intelligence of the music that you Right. I think a lot of it. You know, I had I had a conversation earlier uh, with a friend of mine, Adia Victoria, who's a who's a country singer and a blues singer from the South. And and uh, she she and I were talking about these same things earlier. Um, But, you know, we came to the point that when you grow up in a sort of religious Southern background, I was an only child and I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. My parents were were teenagers when I was born. So they were always working real hard. And when I was, when I was really little, we lived in a trailer in my grandmother's yard, a single wide right next to her driveway. And, um, so I spent the majority of my time for, you know, during the school year, either walking home to my grandparents' house or, you know, in the summer I would stay with my grandparents and, and they had gardens and they had farm animals and, and they also had a lot of religion. My grandfather was a holiness Pentecostal preacher. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so it was serious. It was speaking in tongues, serious stuff. And, um, every part of nature had some, uh, metaphorical connection to the story of the passion, you know, and, and, and every, every flower, every animal, every plant, every tree, everything had something to do with Jesus. And I think the lessons that stuck with me throughout my life from that were lessons of awareness and lessons of this sort of metaphorical connection to nature that our human psyche has, you know, and it, and it fed a narrative that I think um, a lot of Southern writers and artists and musicians fall into this kind of story where, you know, I can use these roses and these trees and these flowers in the same way that, you know, they were used in religion for me when I was a, a child. Um, so I do think that there are a lot of advantages I had growing up there and being a songwriter and an artist later on, you know, plus everybody's got to, if you're going to, 
if you're going to play music and write music, you got to get the blues one way or another. You know, you have to get your own version of it. And uh, being a weirdo kid uh, in front of a bunch of macho Alabama kids was my version of that very often, I think. You know, the the topic of our conversation is like, where does music come from? And obviously we're starting with you with some of the personal, like who's Jason Isbell? Where does it come from culturally, historically, environmentally, personally? I'd love to hear more about, I know you've talked about it a lot, but how unsobriety and drinking culture <laughs> influenced your music early on and how sobriety influences your music later. But since you brought up the Pentecostal thing, that's something that is really, because Reza and I are both, you know, religious scholars. He's a professional religious scholar. I'm an amateur. But, you know, this this Pentecostal idea, uh, and, and Pentecostalism, you know, brought music really hardcore into the churches. Yeah, they had live electric music. Like rock bands. Nowadays, whether you're a Christian or not, you know that like most churches, you go there and it's like drums and a guitar and there's like a huge worship and everybody's dancing and going crazy and stuff. And people don't realize Pentecostalism invented that. Like before Pentecostalism, singing at church was... A mighty fortress is our God. Mm-hmm. Then after Pentecostalism, it was like, wow! Oh, yeah. That must have been, for somebody who, you know, obviously had this childhood love of music, to to see that in church married to spirituality and religion. And, and, and I love what you were saying, how like everything is a metaphor for the passion of Christ. Mm. You know, I mean, that must have had a huge effect on you, right? It was. Yeah, that was everything. That was everything, you know. And uh, I I have managed to leave most of the guilt and the shame behind me on the path, but I kept kept the Holy Ghost fire, you know. Um, I'm not a a particularly religious person, uh, but I, I did keep that sort of, you know, magic uh, alive in a lot of ways. And that was how I bonded with my family. Like I was super close to my, my grandparents, you know, even when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, because I'd, I'd grown up playing music with them. We, we, we played music together and we watched baseball because those were the, that was the only thing we could watch where nobody would say the F word or show a titty or anything, you know? So we, (laughs) we watched baseball and we played music together and, um, and we got along, even in the ages where you don't usually want to spend time with your grandparents. And it was because of that. Like, they understood uh, the rock and roll part of their spirituality. And so they understood the rock and roll part of me a little bit better. But going even broader, what is this connection between, you talked about the fire of the Holy Ghost, and uh, I, I love that. Because mm-hmm. really, we'll get to this later, but the Holy Spirit isn't that just analogous to the muses of ancient Greece? But why do you think music oh, yeah. goes hand in hand with worship? What is it about the the passion of music? How how music opens us up? That from human the beginning of human history, there's been dancing and music going hand in hand with worship. You you've rarely had worship without it. Yeah, that's how we keep the record. You know, that's how we write it down when we don't know how to write. When we don't have anything to write on. Mm, we sing it. We sing it, mm-hmm. and that way we remember it. And then when we sing it, you know, uh, rhythm has a has a, a, a an organic connection with with uh, how you feel and how your brain feels and how you move. And that part is just, I think, uh, biology. I think you can't help but, you know your heart rate elevates and it brings something out of you. But I think originally we sang it to remember it, you know, and I think that's the part that's really sort of sacred to me about music because, you know, growing up in Alabama, the way I did, I didn't know any black people, you know, we were all just poor white people, you know, and, and by poor, I mean, uh, you know, fine, but, uh, you know, we were all in the same boat down there and everybody was working and nobody was ahead. We had what we needed, but, but we were a, a, a very uh, sort of exclusionary sort of community down there. And I didn't know anybody who looked different from me until I got into high school. So, you know, growing up down there, the only exposure I had to the black American experience was was that music. And I started mm-hmm. listening to that and thinking, oh, no, no, no. What I've heard about these folks can't be true. 
you know, because the truth of it is they feel like this. And if they feel like this and they sound like this, then then they got to be more like me than they are different from me. That's because they are keeping the record and they were tell they were passing that information to me. I was not going to go pick up and read uh, a book about it, but I was going to listen to the music, you know. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that I, that makes so much sense. This idea that like the emotion that's being conveyed by these different genres played by different, you know, races, different ethnicities, it becomes so familiar that you think to yourself, well, I felt that. I felt that. So must not be that much separating us, I guess. Yeah, that was how it was was for me. And then I started going and reading about it and actually getting to know people and asking the questions. And But where I grew up, that was just not in the town, Green Hill, Alabama, there was nobody but white kids, you know. Um, and so my first exposure to anybody's life that was different from mine was through music. And then I understood, oh, okay, this is how they get the truth across to people who wouldn't listen otherwise, you know. I tell you, when, I have a memory of a trip to the South visiting friends. And every Sunday, for some reason, we would drive down this one road and Sunday, 10 a.m., one church on one side of the road, parking lot full of black folks walking into a church, exactly other side of the road, parking lot full of white families going into a church across the road, so close, 100 yards away, but couldn't be more far apart. Yeah, I went into a restaurant once in uh, a part of the South when I was on tour 20 years ago when I first started touring, um, and it was a, a soul food restaurant, but it was also a uh, country cooking restaurant. So <laughs> they had two different menus and two different rooms, like separated by like a dividing wall. If you were into home cooking, you went over to this side. And if you're into soul food, you went over to this side. Oh, and I... the food was the same. It was the same <laughs> yeah. food. The sure. same food. It was wow. the same food. Everybody was just sitting in different sides of the room eating the same food. Well, it was the same food in those two churches as well. Exactly. Exactly. You know, there's so much going on in the world right now, whether it's stuff you're excited about, like the start of the NFL season, go Raiders, or it's stuff you'd rather not think about, like a global crippling pandemic that won't go away. But you know what you can control, Rain? What can you control? You can control the vibes in your head with a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears. Whether you use them to pump up, wind down, work, or work out, Raycons are our go-to for the on-the-go audio. And the new everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever. With an improved rubber oil look and feel. They're very sleek. They're small too. I really like how small they are. The optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit, and they're impressive. And before you even start listening, you get three sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds at its best with just the right amount of bass. And Raycons, most importantly, start at half the price of other premium audio brands, but they sound just as good, if not better. And Raycons come with a 45-day happiness guarantee. So right now, Metaphysical Milkshake listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash milkshake. That's buyraycon.com slash milkshake to save 15% on your new Raycons. B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Milkshake. But go, going back to your childhood, you know, Rain brought up this really interesting connection between um, this idea of like, the Holy Spirit, you know, the the, the Holy Spirit uh, uh, coming down and and inspiring you. And in in Pentecostalism, you brought this up. Um, there's also this notion of speaking in tongues or just like sort of free form speaking because you are you are sort of not in control of your own imagination and your and your creativity. It's sort of it, it comes from the divine, right? It's it's God that comes upon you, and the music 
is almost spontaneous in a way. And he's right that that's exactly what the ancient Greeks believed, right? That was the whole point of the the muses, the the nine goddesses who, you know, were like the inspiration for all the arts and sciences. And there, so, and by the way, it's not just the Greeks, you know, you, you said it yourself, this, the, the concept of, of music was always thought of as a divine function, right? Who were, who were the first uh, musicians? Uh, well, it was like the shaman, right? They would, they would record um, the story of the tribe and they would repeat it in, in verse, uh, you know, with a melody. So from the very beginning, there seems to be this kind of notion, regardless of the specific religion or culture or time period, that we are not the ones who originate this creative thing, right, called music or or even just art in general, that it comes from some outside source, you know, whether it's the muses or whether it's the Holy Spirit or whatever the case may be, that our job is to essentially just... Um, tune into that frequency that's out there already. And that if we can just tune in correctly, whether we pray to the muses or whether we open our hearts to Jesus, whatever the case may be, then that's where the the, the creative process begins outside of us, right? Not, not within us. How much of that do you think rings true to you in, insofar as the way that you have created music, created art? I think if we tell the normies the truth, they'll kill us. <laughs> <laughs> we have to come up with something. You know, you God, something. Made me do, God made me do this. God made you me know? do it. They don't understand it. So they think we're working some kind of black magic, man. I love this. And they'll burn us at the stake, you know. Um I think that we we don't give ourselves enough credit as a collective consciousness, you know, um, the way we pass information to each other and the way we innovate and create as a as a species, I think is is infinitely beautiful. And, you know, a lot of people that I care about would probably disagree with me on that. But I think we do a much better job then we give ourselves credit for it just as humans. I think that all that can be contained within the human communal experience. Brain, you're an actor. You've had this experience. Sure. I think all artists have had this experience where like you do something, you create something and you have no idea where it know, came from. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You could be under torture and you couldn't tell you, you couldn't yeah. say where just, it actually came from or how you came up with that decision. Right. Rain. Yes. I mean, you, I do that as a, as an actor, I, I'm sure you do it as a, as a writer Reza, but, um, you know, you do this preparation, you make plans of how you're going to play a character or something like that. And then you find something spontaneously and you don't know where it came from. I'll, I'll tell you a little story. Here's a fun little story. This is kind of what got me started acting. So I, at my high school in Chicago, New Trier High School, they had a very advanced acting program. I had moved there from blue-collar suburban Seattle, and there was this rich high school in Chicago. And I started acting, and one of the high school plays they did was Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw. So it was really highfalutin play. And I was playing Alfred Doolittle, the Cockney working-class mm-hmm. kind of philosopher father. Let's and- hear the Cockney accent. Uh, Hello, Liza. It's me, Alfred Doolittle, your father. Oh, I say, Governor, uh, we've got to, we've got some trouble brewing ahead. How was that? I believe it. I totally still believe it. it. That's kind of how it. I did it. I did a lot of like this kind of rolling my shoulders. Anyway, <laughs> here I am, first night in front of an audience, and I'm doing a monologue, and I'm there, and I'm I'm acting as Alfred Doolittle. The set decoration had put a little bowl with chocolates on the table. And I kind of finished my spiel, saw the bowl, picked it up and dumped the chocolates into my pocket and put the bowl back down on the table. I had never rehearsed it. I didn't think about it. I didn't plan it. It just felt like a good idea at the time for old Alfred Doolittle to do it. It got raucous laughter. We had to hold, we had to stop the play. <laughs> and that's kind of when the penny dropped for me. I was kind of like, holy shit, there is 
there's something to this. I don't know what that was, but whatever that moment was, I want to be a part of that. I want to do that. I don't know the rehearsing and the memorizing lines and all this other stuff, but I want to be a part of that moment where there's magic. I think that there's a lot about um, our unconscious mind that we don't understand. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's easier to say that's magic than to say, I just don't know how my brain is working right now. Um, But I do think that there, you know, there is in all the chaos that there are patterns and that you can sometimes find yourself riding a wave. It's like when you're playing blackjack. Like I know, you guys know, if you're playing blackjack and there's six decks of cards, your odds for every single hand should really be the same. They should be pretty close to identical, whether you're playing at the top of the shoe the middle of the shoe or the end of the shoe. But if you've ever sat and played blackjack for days on end, uh, like some of us degenerates, I'm, I'm speaking for a friend. I don't know. <laughs> but if you've ever sat in the casino for way too long, you know that, that there are runs in luck and that, that if you know uh. when to bet, the odds are going to, they're going to play out differently. And I think that sometimes if our sense of awareness is where it needs to be. And if we're living in the moment and if our heads and our asses are in the same place, like they used to tell me in rehab, we catch one of those waves and we ride mm. one of those little veins of gold inside all the chaos. You know, that's how I look at it. But it's inside. I, you know, I, I, I like I like the way that you're talking about this because look, collective consciousness, that in and of itself is kind of a, a metaphysical that's idea. That is you know, magic. Yeah. It's magic. You're right. We were doing a little bit of research on this kind of idea of like where does music come from, you know, and and uh and you know, we wanted to know like like evolutionarily where did music come from? Like why what is the adaptive advantage of music? Because music is basically another form of language, but it's a uh, it's, you know, a more cumbersome form of language. So that doesn't really help us survive or anything. I can tell you right now how it helps us multiply, Reza. That's what I was just going to say. That's I was the, just going to say that. There is no greater uh, meaning to music than to try to get laid. I have this, I have this quote right here. This is, this is Darwin. Primeval man probably first used his voice in producing true musical cadences, as do some of the gibbon apes at the present day. And we may conclude that this power would have been especially exerted during the courtship of the sexes. Music evolved to get us laid. Yeah. I don't know. I think, I think music is in every culture of the world. It's in every, you can go find a, mm-hmm. some lost tribe in the Amazon or Borneo or something like that. They'll have some kind of form of music. And, you know, uh, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a materialist. I, I believe that, uh, you know, I believe in a higher power and I believe in uh, a magic in the universe that's beyond the material, that's beyond uh, molecules. And, um, I think there's something truly mysterious about this human need to express in song and rhythm uh, something ex- to express our humanity. And yes, birds sing, but you know they 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 sing to mate. I mean, I, I suppose that you could kind of quantify what what their songs are for. But there's something really. As mysterious as consciousness itself, there is a mystery underlying this universal musical human impulse. Yeah, I I, I wouldn't disagree with that because um, I feel like the significance of it has has grown, and it's become so important, uh, you know, to everybody in a way that it it can't necessarily really just be uh, to. Uh, reproduce or to survive or to evolve. I mean, I also think that like I personally, I I try to be careful of the magic of music um, because I think very often that's the story that you get told, not you, but you know, that's the, that those were some of the stories that I were, I was told. uh, So I didn't figure out the truth, you know, Um, 
I think Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil uh, because there are a lot of white people who are real embarrassed that they couldn't play like Robert Johnson. And so they said, <laughs> right. he won't show us how mm. to do that. He sold his Must soul have been to Satan. the devil. Yeah. yeah, it's like aliens with the pyramids. It's like, no, just accept the fact that brown people built something you couldn't fucking build. Let's do that, you know? <laughs> Love that the magic is is the difference between what we understand and and what's happening. But you know, I know that's I know that's kind of depressing. Well, how do you start a song? You're writing a song. I, I know this is probably the, the tiredest question that musicians ever get asked, but it's such a mystery to me because I I don't you know I'm an artist and uh, but I wouldn't know how to write a song. You got to put a gun to my head. I, I don't know that I could write a song, although. My my series mm-hmm. of love songs to Reza Aslan might fill an album. Yeah, it's true. But, yeah, you know how to write a song. But but how, do you start with an image? You start with a lyric, a riff. Is it does it always change? Is it a memory? Is it a is it a longing in your heart that needs expression? Do you tap into that collective memory that you were talking about? Sometimes I get on a wave. Yeah, every once in a while, I'll feel like I'm just riding something and hanging on. Like a blackjack hand. Exactly. Sometimes I'll feel like I'm just hanging on, you know, and that is magical. And I won't say that my wife would fucking kill me if she heard me say that there's no magic in that. Because there, there is. There is. Um, but more often than not, like if I was going to sit down and write a song right now, uh, which I'm not, but if I was going to, I would I would pick up a guitar and I would start playing the guitar and I would start humming a melody. And um, uh, I would get a little bit of a melody first and then I would vocalize that uh, syllabically. You know, I would scan it into some type of gibberish words like scrambled eggs, like Paul mm-hmm. was doing with scrambled eggs when he woke up that morning. Um, and then I would replace that. You know, the majority of songwriting is edited for me. Because, um, you know, I I wind up just immediately going back and fixing and going back and you take, you know, one step up and two steps back or or two steps up and one step back and you finally get somewhere. Um, But sometimes it is a phrase like that happens a lot, too. I take a ton of notes, just things that I say or things that I overhear. I jot them down on my phone or on a piece of paper in my computer or something. Or I'll sing a voice memo to myself. I've got a whole bunch of voice memos like uh, the song Traveling Alone on Southeastern, I, I was, it was very literal. Sometimes it's so literal that it, it makes me laugh that I think you are a cheesy bastard. You are an old man in a club with a dog right now. Uh, you are so corny because this is really what's happening to you and you're about to write a song about it. <laughs> so you were traveling alone? Yes. I'm, God, I'm tired of traveling alone. God, that sounds like a song. I get tired of traveling alone. Exactly. And then you're like, Oh, you asshole. You can't you do idiot. that. But that's that country music thing where your heart is on your sleeve and you sing it. That's that part yes. of country music that is uh, universal and beautiful. And courageous and courageous to mm. say how you earnestly feel without hiding behind any kind of wit. You know. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Okay, I, I hate to put you on the spot and you feel free to say no, truly, Jason. Do you have a guitar handy and can you just strum a little bit and just hum something as in, in the context of you, how you would write a song? Just, just get, can you demonstrate sure. this? And by the way, uh, dear listeners, uh, I understood that Jason's wife, Amanda Shires, who was also a brilliant uh, violinist, singer, musician, songwriter, um, part of the uh, the highway women, the high women, highway yeah, women, the high women. Um, yeah. uh, she was a huge office and Dwight fan. So I sent oh, over yeah. a care package of like signed bobbleheads and office bric-a-brac and I knew I was going to call in that favor, and this is it. I called in Jason yeah. Isbell. Oh, yeah, I'm happy to, <laughs> man. Really, you got me uh, uh, a lot of a lot of points on that because that year she, I was like, "What do you want for Christmas this year, honey?" And she was like, "You know, I want uh, 
this from Dwight Schrute. And I was like, Dwight Schrute is not a real person. Um, so I would start like... To me, that sounds a little mm. bit like the band, like Levon Helm, Robbie Robertson. That sounds like the night they drove old Dixie down, which conveniently, conveniently that song has been canceled because it's about uh, the Confederacy. So what we should do now, if I were writing a song, would be write something to replace the night that drove old Dixie down. Mm. Um, so now I have kind of a subject matter. So I would be like, well, let's write something about that war that's not celebrating the confederacy this is just what i would do right now and make it kind of sound like the night they drove old dixie down um so that's the exercise is to like write a write a replacement for that not that i would ever do that but and here we're changing the melody a little bit later than we change the chord because that's how we're creating tension and release. So like if you're if you're walking down from the C major to the relative minor and you're singing like a five Now if I if I took the melody down at the same time as the chord change it becomes piano man. That's not what you want, you know. You want something that makes it more tense, you know. So the part of that that sticks out to me is the da na na. So that's the part I would probably write first. I would say that's the part that's going to stick. So what are those words going to be? And then I would record that so I didn't forget it, and I would work on da na na three syllables you know short word long word or three short words because if you do long word short word it's going to sing in a different way than it speaks and you're cheating you know and people can hear that when you're when you're mm -hmm. cheating so i would go short word long word and then i would start looking for a short word and a long word that had something to do with the reality of the story that was uh, romanticized in the beautiful song, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down by the Band. This is amazing. You know what just happened just right there? What happened? It's the perfect melding of what we were just talking about, right? So someone can watch what Jason just did and be like, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I could see the inspiration just kind of coming. Like, why start with that chord? And and then suddenly something familiar came out of it. And that, that da, 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 like that was just, you know, it was, it just sort of felt right. But listening to him talk, what was he talking about? He was talking about the South, which is where he was, where, where he's from. There was some church, churchy feel there to it, which is how he grew up. Right. There's some R&B feeling, which is like the theme. Right. Well, I'm going to change the theme. It's the it's the collective consciousness. Right. It's it's a lifetime of experience that has gone beyond any kind of real conscious awareness of. And it just comes out and it looks like it was divinely inspired. But in reality, it is the sum total of place and spirit and experience and identity and the song comes out of there but you know there's magic in keeping yourself open to the, to those creative ideas you know and and that's the part that i don't necessarily understand because at this point after writing songs for this long i have a a, a switch that i flip well it kind of always stays flipped to the creative side now but I would never stop myself. Never. Like that's the first mistake. You know, that's the first rule is don't ever cut yourself off. If you're making something creative, try everything, be open to everything, go for it. If it looks stupid, nobody has to see it, but you, you know, mm -hmm. um, 
And that's where the magic is. How do you get your mind into that place? How do you accumulate the experience and the knowledge to make what you want to make, not necessarily something that's good or bad, because then you're talking about taste, which is another version of the collective unconscious. But, you know, to make something that you want to make, once you know what you need to know, how do you keep access to that? And it's like, when I was working on that movie over the summer, the Scorsese movie. Um, that movie? That Scorsese movie? That yeah, Scorsese yeah. movie you know over that, the summer. That, when, I was, when I was acting in that Scorsese movie over the summer. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, love the listening audience. Before we were recording, we're talking about, uh, I made a little crack to Jason. I was like, okay, okay, you can let your fake Southern accent go now and let's have a real conversation. And he was saying how, Robert De Niro almost had the same reaction. Wasn't sure if it was a real accent or not. While shooting on the Scorsese film, I've been an actor for 30 years. Try, I would do anything to be in a Scorsese film. I once peed next to Martin Scorsese at the Golden Globes, okay? I once said hello to Robert De Niro. I would do anything to be in that movie. Here I am struggling away, trying to get respect. Oh, you... <laughs> You played this doofus on The Office. You'll never be in a Scorsese movie, you fucking idiot. And you've got a face like an old clown. I could play a redneck weirdo and learn your accent, Isabel. Do you understand? I know. I believe it. I believe it. Let's hear it. Let's hear hear your Jason Isabel. Hey, how y'all? How y'all doing down there in the, what's it called? Like Hot House of the Yellow Orchid or something like that? What's it called? Killers of the Flower Moon. Oh, that's it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite a flower moon we got up there. See? Boom. I, yeah. I, got, I got no defense for that, Ray. I think, Rain, if I, if I may, I think they were like, look, we need someone opposite Leo DiCaprio who's not going to take all the attention away from oh. DiCaprio. Yes, that's so they, exactly they couldn't what it was. Have you, oh, Rain. maybe they, that's they just, what know, it was. Yes. It's not the kind of movie where it's like this. It's not. It's like right. he's here. <laughs> They needed somebody who was basically furniture. <laughs> yeah. And you can't be furniture. You could be me, but you can't be furniture, Rain. I can't be furniture. Thanks, guys. I feel so much better. <laughs> you were saying, you were saying, Jason. One of the things that I have done that I'm the most grateful for out of all the work I've ever done in my whole life was being out there on this movie. Um, I wish I could tell you, Rain, that it was that it sucked, but it was amazing. But one thing that I that I saw that blew my mind was the fact that there, there are these uh, uh, actresses who are all, they play sisters, they play Osage sisters, and they're from various different um, uh, tribes around North America. They're, they're not, they're not Osage, but they were playing Osage sisters and they learned the Osage language for their lines. And, um, you know, I noticed a lot of this movie is very sad. And a lot of the scenes, these women are crying, you know, and of course, the first time I saw that, I was like, oh, crying on cue. This is amazing. This is such great acting. But then I realized after talking to them about this, that they were, that was not acting. That was traveling. They, hmm. they were, they were not acting like they were crying. They were reaching and opening the door to the most horrible traumatic experiences that they had ever had. And the hmm. fact that they had to stay that close to that part of themselves while they were shooting these scenes just blew my mind because I thought you just taught yourself to cry, but really you don't. You taught your, you know, they had taught themselves to be that open, you know, and to allow themselves to go to those places because they weren't faking that shit. They were bald. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was mm-hmm. insane. And, and I asked about it and, and they were kind enough to tell me, you know, that they were going to these dark places in their past. And I was very, uh, sort of moved by that, you know, mm. uh, that that being able to access that and still keep your head above water just as a human person. But you've you've gone to some dark places yourself in your life, in your struggles with uh, alcoholism and drug abuse, in your journey to sobriety. So was it easier for you to write songs through the haze of uh, you know, chemicals. Oh no, that was way harder. Cause there's kind of a myth of the tortured artist who needs to be on drugs in order to create this brilliance. Yeah. And then once you lose that crutch, then you've lost your voice. Yeah. I, I was afraid of that. 
But turns out that was just the part of me that wanted to keep on drinking and using drugs. You know, that 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 was the guy on my shoulder going, yeah, you're not going to be able to do this if you let me go. I'm your best buddy. You know, mm. I'm the only reason you can access these parts of yourself. Mm. Um, now, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you I didn't have to sort of relearn how to get there, you know, and, and how to open myself up. And, and you know, because when you're drunk, you're mad and then you're crying and then you're ecstatic and you're all these things you know so for a long time there yeah it was it was there was a wall up and and i had to learn how to make myself vulnerable uh again and i still work on that all the time every day um you know but i definitely don't think i mean look at my career before and after you know uh, southeastern was the first album i made sober um and uh i mean that's you know that was a big big turning point for me as far as every aspect you know creatively and just career and career terms you know that's amazing jason thank you so much for sharing your story with us your thoughts uh the the magic the muse and uh and giving us a little uh musical demonstration is unbelievable what a what an incredible treat thank you for uh exploring this question with us today thank you for having me and uh yeah, I'm always happy to talk to you and and love your work. And, and Reza, I, I ran around trying to tell people about Zealot years ago when I read it. And nobody in Franklin, Tennessee wanted to hear what I had to say about that book. So I just kept that little nugget of joy in my own heart. Oh, that's <laughs> I appreciate that, Jason. Thank you, man. That book was a big deal to me. Big deal. Before we let you go... Um, we do a lightning round. Uh, questions. Uh, first thing that comes into your mind, uh, we're going to pepper you with profound and ridiculous questions, and you're going to illuminate us. Uh, describe your soul in 10 words or less. My soul is rubber. What was the happiest day of your life? When my daughter was born. It was also the scariest. It was both. It was happiest and scariest. Yeah. I love it when those two emotions go hand in hand. That's the easy answer. I mean, it, it, yeah, that's how it's, then you feel alive for real, don't you? What emotion do you wish you could better control? Frustration. Like that, it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a secondary, probably a tertiary emotion of, of fear. I mean, that answer is always going to be fear. But uh, I, I wish that I was better at showing people that I'm truly happy on the inside. Because mm. uh, sometimes I do the old male depression party and I'm a grumpy, big grumpy <laughs> Alabama man, you know. What happens to us after we die? Um, who cares? <laughs> no one's ever answered that. I like that. <laughs> what is something very few people know about you? I mean, very few, like a handful. I love Dua Lipa. What is America? An experiment. The results aren't in yet. Uh, what book changed your life besides Zealot by Reza Aslan? <laughs> yes. Um, Available on paperback. I think uh, Shadow Country by Peter Matheson. Uh, that might be my favorite piece of fiction ever written. And it just it just taught me so much about how the story changes depending on who's telling it. You're stranded on a deserted island. You have a record player, and you can bring three records. Sticky Fingers. Wait, 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 wait. You would bring Sticky Fingers over Exiles on Main Street? Over Exile. Over Exile. Oh yes, I God. would. I've had this argument with a lot of people. Uh, <gasps> but, you know, I'm from Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And, and uh, uh, Wild Horses was recorded in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. All right, you got two more discs. Let's go. Time is money. Uh, Equimini. Nice. Um, yeah, Equimini. What is that? I don't know what that is. Outcast, yo. Oh, okay. Uh, rain isn't cool is one I thing you should know. <laughs> I think Equimini is a beautiful, beautiful piece of work and probably the complete Robert Johnson recording. Is humanity doomed? I don't think, okay, it's kind of like, you know, when people get a divorce and they say their marriage failed. Uh, I think, no, it didn't. It succeeded for so long, you know? It just didn't last forever. I think humanity is blessed with the experience of living on this planet that we have made uninhabitable for ourselves. And yeah, one day we'll be gone. We're not getting nothing. Not everything's doomed. But, you know, we've had this opportunity to have some time uh, in this form. And that's been 
really badass for a lot of us. If you could have coffee with 15-year-old Jason Isbell, what would you tell him? Don't drink coffee. You're 15 <laughs> years old. <laughs> what are you doing? You're going to be up all night. <laughs> Jason, finally, we like to end with, what is your life's biggest big question? What is right and what is wrong? And, I, you know, it's a small question that I answer every time I make a decision, I think, or, or most of the time. A lot of things are just easy. But but I, I I wind up thinking, you know, what is right and what is wrong? And I try to stop there. Once I've decided that, I like to act, you know. Um, but, yeah, what are the stakes in, in the battle between right and wrong? Um, not is it worth it to do the right thing, but why is it worth it to do the right thing? That's the question for me. Well, Jason Isbell, I want to thank the muses for uh, this conversation. Not you. You didn't have anything to do with it. It just came I'm from the outside. Yeah, you're just a conduit. So I want to thank all the divine gods slash goddesses uh, who made this conversation happen. Uh, this is really fascinating, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope I hope uh, you guys enjoyed talking with me because I really enjoyed oh, yeah. talking with y'all. I, I did. This was a pleasure and an honor, and I can't wait to not see you in that Scorsese film. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rain. Yeah. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, they have those classes, master class, where you can watch. Bobby Flay cook a fish, you know, or Venus Williams do a tennis serve. Um, mm -hmm. Watching Jason Isbell, and I know it was just a little fun little side riff that we didn't have pre-planned at all, but just for those seven minutes with his guitar talking us through a songwriting process and his thought process, was, that was absolutely incredible. There was something so um, mysterious and yet really practical at the same time, you know, it was very, it was very grounded, very real, very meat and potatoes, nothing airy fairy about it. But yet at the same time, something kind of beautiful, beautiful and mystical going on. That was, that was, I, I feel privileged to have witnessed that. I, I really, I feel the same. I really loved it. And so much of it is about, I mean, you know, longtime listeners of our podcast know that one of the things that drives us is is our refusal to give any you know real uh, sort of attention to this dichotomy, right? Material, spiritual, you know, body, soul. Like that's not how we are. We we think that it's all the same, right? That's all one thing. And so it was so funny to have a guest call us on it, who was like, "It's like no, it's not. It's not some you know it's mysterious you know muse." Mm. Uh, it's the collective unconscious, which in and of itself is mysterious, mm. right? Like you don't need to go out there to look for some metaphysical existential uh, answer to where art comes from. It's already existential. It's already metaphysical from within you, right? That the magic is inside of you. I thought that was really, really beautiful. That was really fantastic. And look, I'm going to be honest with you. It, it kind of, uh, it, it, it brought me back to my... Uh, my rock star days. I feel like maybe Jason and I ought to, I mean, is he looking for an opening act? I mean, I can, I can get the band back together again. I can call Pike. Remember, you still need to prove to us that you were in the band Pike and I'm going to need to hear some mm. beautiful dulcet tones, mm. some lyrics <laughs> from the band Pike. What are you going to be singing from? Which song? Yeah. The song is called Untitled, one of our biggest hits. She gets in the front row. The smell of fog machines makes her come. See, now, it could be, like, sexual. It could be, you know, what do you, I mean, you know, what are we talking Wait, about here? is that she for real? She falls down like a domino. You were in a Christian rock band talking about women coming? No, is she came to the show. Jesus Christ, Rain. This, oh, your, man. Your, your mind immediately goes into the garbage. My mind was in the gutter. Reza? Having heard you sing, I just have one thing to say. Can I join Pike? Please. I want to be a part of this. Ooh. Like as a roadie? Like you want to like tune our instruments? No, I don't want to be a roadie. I want to be in the band. I want to sing harmony with you. I'll, I'll play any instrument, whatever you need. Bassoon, whatever you need. You know, 
every rock band does need a bassoon. So, you know, this this question of <clears throat> where inspiration comes from really sparked a lot of conversation amongst our listeners. We, you know, we want to know uh, what inspires you. Where do you think inspiration comes from? Is it from within? Is it from outside? Do you agree with Jason where it's about like a collective consciousness that exists within us? Or are you more like the Greeks where you think that it's the muses or some divine source that, that inspires you? Uh, we got a lot of answers to this question, Rain. Really? We got the top three here, top three answers about where inspiration comes from. Okay, great. First one is uh, Melissa. Hello, Rain and Reza. My name's Melissa, and I get my inspiration. Um, so I love writing. I'm a writer, and I get my inspiration when I go on walks. I don't have anything in front of me except for the environment and other people and observing things and taking in all the stimuli. And that makes me feel like my mind can go in places and, and connect the dots and come up with my own reality and my own stories about what I see is going on around me. And then when I get home, I have all this energy and I put hand to laptop and my mind just explores because it's open and not hampered by technology or something else like social media in front of my mind. So that's where my inspiration comes from. Nature, outdoors, walking. That's it. The first thing that brought to mind is um, <clears throat> I was reading this incredible article not long ago that talks about the power of walking and that you know, look, our species is what, two, 300,000 years old. And we've always walked up until about, I don't know, 50 years ago or so we stopped walking. Yeah. And then that's when there's been this incredible outbreak of uh, this mental health epidemic and anxiety and depression. I'm not saying it's a complete corollary, but at the same time, there's something remarkably healing about walking. Yeah. Um, and it's literally how it how it works in our brain. They've done brain studies where right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, it kind of like, it's like the the therapy EMDR where your uh, neuro impulses go from left hemisphere to right hemisphere and back again. There is something healing and soothing about the act of walking. And I I couldn't agree with her more. You know, it's funny. I, I have a friend, uh, Gabrielle Caro-Caressi, who's a phenomenal poet. And uh, and she writes all of her poems while walking, like she she doesn't like you know she doesn't have a piece of paper or pen or she doesn't sit down somewhere, like she she writes while she walks. So it's a very common very common uh, place of inspiration here. Thank you very much, Melissa. We got one more person here. This is Blair. This is Blair Ellistat. I'm a Toronto-based colorist, and what inspires me is many things, but most notably in my profession, the amazing world around me landscapes, architecture, natural colors of the world, people, faces, emotions. It's all right there in front of you. That dude needs to be on radio. Uh, he's got a great voice. Blair, find yourself a podcast. But when he said colorist, and then he said, and, and looking at the world around me, like the shampooers and the hairstylists and the receptionist at the front and the scissors and the barbicide, isn't that colorist? Maybe he meant colorist like, you know, like... You know, like film colorist. Thank you for your beautiful voice and your inspiration and this quest that you have provided for us to find out what a colorist does. All right, let's do one more. Uh, this is Laura. My name is Laura and I'm an interior designer. It's hard to put my finger on what it is exactly that excites me creatively. But when I see that certain thing, whether it be art, film, or travel, I just have this feeling of excitement. It's inspirational, it transports me, and it helps me think of new, interesting ways to translate it into my, into my job, really. Fantastic. Wow, that's beautiful. You know, I think everyone can be creative, and uh, it's, it's fantastic to hear these uh, stories and these examples of people finding inspiration and creativity all around them. I think it's an important message to keep relaying that uh, creativity and inspiration is just there for us to find. Thank you, listeners, for writing in, for calling into our speak pipe. 
If you want to leave us uh, a life's big question, uh, a thought on one of our episodes, you can contact us at SpeakPipe, which is speakpipe.com slash metaphysical milkshake, and leave us an audio message. We may use it, and it will be delicious. Thank you, Jason Isbell, for diving deep with the Metaphysical Milkshake team. Uh, do you want more of life's big questions? Find us on the socials, please, at Reza Aslan and at Rain Wilson. And on Twitter, at MetaMilkPodcast and Instagram, at Metaphysical Milkshake. And let us know your life's big questions. We might explore them on a future episode. We might bring you on a future episode to be featured. So please, please write us. Yeah, and tell us where you fall on this whole, where does music come from? Is it... Do you believe in divine inspiration? Do you believe in the muses? Uh, or do you think it's just a guy sits down with a guitar and a pad and a piece of paper and, and a pen and just works it? Works it like he's working the fry station at McDonald's. Also, remember to follow, rate, and review Metaphysical Milkshake on Apple Podcasts and wherever you listen to podcasts. We really rely on your reviews. Uh, so thank you very much for that. Please subscribe to Metaphysical Milkshake on YouTube channel and you can watch us talking instead of just listening to us talking. See you next week. She gets in the front row. The smell of fog machines makes her come. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Dear Lord. Come on. That's, that's, that's a hit. It's that's good. a hit right there. It's good. It's really, really good. Jason Isbell, call me. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It's produced by Safa Samizadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick Demaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. It is edited by Tyler Newbold and audio mixed by Justin Kyle. Original music is composed by Jeff Tang. I tell you what, Jason, $100,000. I will dress up as Dwight Schrute and make love to your wife. Do not let her hear this. <laughs> Man, come on. Like, can you cut that out of the uh, program? Yeah, we'll, don't worry. We're, it's yes, going we'll, in. We will definitely edit that part if out. If not, it's I going am out $100,000 <laughs> and possibly some of my pride. We don't. I don't know how it's going to work out, but it might cost me some of my pride. But think of the song that, that'll come out of it, though. <laughs> yeah. But I'll get a song out of it. <laughs>